Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Dr. Catherine Heo to the podcast. Catherine is an atmospheric scientist and professor of political science at Texas Tech University, where she's also director of the Climate Science Center. Her research focuses on understanding what climate change means for people and the places where we live. Catherine hosts the PBS digital series, Global Weirding, has been named one of Time's 100 Most Influential People and Fortune's 50 World's Greatest Leaders. So uh, thank you very much, Catherine, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very much looking forward to speaking to you today. As we, we, we've been in, in contact for a little while, you've been very busy doing some uh, really important work. And um, uh, over that time, we've, we've had uh, the arrival of the, the coronavirus and, and the pandemic and so forth. So maybe we'll talk about that a little bit as well as the, the main work you're doing in, in, in climate science. Uh, maybe just to, to just set the scene a little bit, can you maybe tell us a little bit about your background and your current work focus, Catherine? Certainly. So my undergraduate degree is actually in physics and astronomy. And I was planning to be an astrophysicist. I'd already started doing research on uh, galaxy clusters. But I needed one extra class to finish my degree. And there was a new class over in the geography department on climate change. So I thought, well, that looks interesting. Why not take it? So I took it and it completely changed my perspective because I had always thought of climate change as another environmental issue. So air pollution, biodiversity loss, deforestation, climate change, issues that in my mind I thought environmentalists care about and environmentalists work on and the rest of us wish them well. But when I took this class, I realized, first of all, that climate change is a threat multiplier. It takes every issue that we are already concerned about today, especially issues of poverty, vulnerability, lack of access to basic health care or food or clean water, even political instability and refugee crises, and it makes them worse. The second realization was the fact that climate science is the very same physics I'd been learning in my physics and astronomy classes. So I thought to myself, well, surely this is such a huge problem. We'll fix it soon. But in the meantime, I think I should do everything I can to help with this because this is not just a niche issue. This is an issue that is central to the survival of human civilization as we know it. So that was how I started working on climate science. And unfortunately, my optimism back then was a little misplaced because that was quite some time ago. And we have not fixed it yet. But the good news is, is that it isn't a boulder sitting at the bottom of a hill with just a few hands on it. The boulder is actually starting to roll downhill. Over 70% of new energy being installed around the world is clean energy. The costs for clean energy have dropped astronomically over the past 20 years. We are seeing policies put in place around the world from the carbon pricing in my home country of Canada to countries like uh, Finland outlying coal, countries like uh, Norway and India uh, having regulations in place to ban internal combustion engines in the future, uh, big investment firms divesting from their coal stocks and sovereign wealth funds, determining that they won't do any more oil and gas exploration. So the boulder is starting to roll downhill, but as a climate scientist, I know that it isn't happening quite fast enough. 
So that's why today I spend my time doing two things primarily. First of all, studying and communicating the local to regional scale risks of climate change. So we understand that it's not just about the polar bears or the ice sheets. It is about what is happening to us in the places where we live, number one. And then I spend a lot of my time talking to people about why it matters and what we can do to fix it. Because the biggest problem that we have when it comes to climate change is not um, lack of information on science. It's the fact that we don't think it matters to us and we don't think there's anything we can do to fix it. And so those are the two biggest issues that we need to tackle if we're going to get more hands on this boulder pushing it faster downhill. Yes, right. Very good way of, uh, of framing it. Um, I, because the next question I was going to ask, and maybe you've, maybe, maybe you've already answered it, and I usually ask this at the beginning. I mean, we're facing numerous, uh, dramatic, uh, existential, some crises. And I'm just wondering what in particular is on your mind right now? Well, I think that that's a very valid question. I think it really drives home the answer of why climate change matters. So if all that climate change we're doing, we're increasing the average temperature of the planet by two or three or four degrees. But if that were all that was happening, it really wouldn't matter. The reason why we care about it is because that warming, that global warming, is having all kinds of repercussions all around the world. It's making our summer heat waves much more severe, more intense, more frequent. It's increasing the risk of heavy precipitation, making coastal storms, including hurricanes, typhoons, and cyclones stronger and more damaging. It's making droughts longer and more intense. It's increasing the area burned by wildfire. And all of these are affecting us. They affect our health. They affect the economy. They affect our welfare. They affect the quality of our food and water. And as I mentioned before, they even affect political instability and refugee crises. So climate change is, as actually the U.S. military <laughs> says, they, it is a threat multiplier. We care about it because of all the other things that we already care about today. Well, it's very interesting the way you present it there. And I talk about that a little bit later in terms of science communications, I guess, and a lot of the, the deadlines, the things that are going to happen uh, in the future, the threats. And the way you're talking about it now is it's unfolding as we speak. And, and, and that's very interesting also, I think, in terms of how we, we, we talk about it. And, and uh, maybe we'll come back to that a, a little bit later. Uh, I'm just wondering whether you could maybe set the scene a little bit. There's, there's a lot of data around um, and I know also there's lags, um, the IPCC in particular, uh, or, or not in particular, but just generally uh, in terms of the way that the measurements are taken and also the, the, the time it takes to agree to present certain kinds of data and so forth. And I'm just wondering what, uh, I mean, right now, what are the, the key variables, a few key variables that, that tell this story? Mm-hmm. Well, the lag in the climate system is one of our greatest challenges because we humans are really good at putting off decisions that we know without a shadow of a doubt are beneficial, yet somehow we don't think the impacts matter to us now. So like what? Like, for example, um, none of us really eat exactly what we should. We don't exercise enough. We don't put it, we don't save enough money for retirement, even though we know that we should be doing these things. In general, most of us fall short. Why? Because we don't see the impacts as affecting us today. They're, they appear to be distant and far off in the future. Well, unfortunately, that's exactly the case with climate change. Our emissions today will determine our future in 20 to 30 years. But by the time that future is staring us in the face, it's too late to go back and say, oh, no, I want to do it differently. It's as if you're being put into the ambulance to be taken to the hospital when you just had a heart attack. 
and you're protesting and you say, no, no, you don't have to take me to the hospital. I promise I will exercise. I will exercise every day. I will eat much more healthily. I will not eat any more fast food. And then, and they're saying, of course, you know, the paramedics would say, no, it's too late. I'm sorry. You have to go to the hospital or else you might die. So with climate change, that lag is one of our most serious problems. The lag in the climate system and seeing the impact of the choices we are making today. So in terms of relating climate change to the pandemic, we are currently with climate change where we were at with the pandemic in the early days of March. So in the early days of March, people were aware of it, but they primarily still thought, oh, it's really about China or maybe Italy or Iran might be getting hit, but it's not about us. And I was actually in the UK in early to mid-March giving a series of talks. I only travel in person when I've lined up multiple talks in the same place, which is the last time you and I met. I had a similar trip like that. And this time I had 18 talks lined up to give in 11 days. And when I began those talks in Ireland, actually, then then Northern Ireland, then um, Scotland, and then I was moving into England, when I began those talks, the coronavirus threat was just a small cloud on the horizon. Yet within one week, we had gone from a small cloud in the horizon to an enormous storm overlying all of the British Isles with all of the events being canceled and people trying to get home. So we were able to move very quickly to action because coronavirus spreads in a matter of days to weeks at most. But we are in those early days of March right now in terms of climate change. But the problem is, is that by the time we get to mid-March with climate change, which will happen in about, you know, 15, 20 years, it's too late to say, oh, no, we want to make those decisions that would help out in the early stages. At that point, you're looking at much more significant change. And so I think that greatest, the greatest challenge we face is that. And that is exactly why I do what I do. So I study the impacts of climate change and I bring them home to the local scale. What does climate change mean for our water supply, our air quality? the integrity of our infrastructure, the amount of snow that we have in winter for winter sports, the range of specific birds that are iconic to that region, the production of agricultural crops. And I lay out very clearly, if the world warms by one and a half or two or three or four degrees, here is the difference in those futures. And the time to pick your future is now. Right. Yes, that's a stark uh, and uh, clear um, pre- presentation there. Um, the the uh, you, you mentioned the the uh, I guess making a, a parallel between the, the 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 coronavirus pandemic and so forth. Have you been surprised by? Um, I mean, it's a unique situation. The virtually the whole world at a standstill, and all we have some data. I think I don't know how accurate it is about the uh, drop in 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 CO two. Um, I, I, I relatively, I mean, I, I don't know what the figure, less than 10% and so forth. And I think in the carbon brief today, um, they were saying that, uh, that this, the level we've seen would need to be every year for this decade. We need to see this kind of drop in order to meet the 1.5 uh, climate goal. Um, and now I, I guess one can discuss the figures and assumptions and so forth. But if it is that kind of order, what does that say about what the kinds of things that we are going to need to do? to create the scale of change that we need? Mm -hmm. Well, I have a Twitter thread that addresses exactly this issue because as the pandemic has rolled over us, we have seen very significant drops in carbon emissions in major industrial places like China and the United States. Drops in China were estimated to be around maybe 20% temporarily for a number of weeks and 
Globally, it's estimated that the pandemic will lead to a decrease of about 5 to 8% in our annual carbon emissions. And that's because, of course, as the pandemic passes, industrial production ramps right back up again. And a large amount of our emissions are industrial production. Some of it is transportation, but a lot of it is um, either uh, transportation related to goods rather than people, which continues obviously today, or it's related to industry. So people say, well, isn't it great news that emissions have dropped so precipitously in just a few weeks, you know, 20% in some places. And I say, well, you know, any drop is good. But the truth is, as the pandemic passes, those emission reductions will ramp right back up again, or I should say the emissions will ramp right back up again, because they weren't achieved through sustainable methods. In other words, they're not sustainable long-term. Shutting down industry, shutting down the economy, throwing people out of work so they can't even feed their families, taking children out of school, those are not sustainable solutions. When it comes to climate change, we need sustainable permanent solutions that will keep the economy open, that will keep people employed, that will enable them to continue to feed their families and enable children to continue to go to school. So then people might say, okay, so then this wasn't good news at all then. No, actually, it shows us what's possible when we actually put our mind to it. So just as a a measure, if we want to meet the one and a half degree target, uh, which is not a magic number. I mean, it doesn't mean that if we end up at 1.49, everything's fine. It isn't. Some people are already confronting dangerous climate change today at one degree. And if we end up at 1.51 or 1.6 or 1.7, it doesn't mean that we've failed. It means that we've avoided a significant amount of impacts. But if we're aiming for the one and a half degree target, then in terms of the total amount of carbon that we can produce to stay below that target, we would be on track to remain below that if we reduced our emissions globally about 40 to 60% by 2030. And this is where the whole myth comes from that we have 12, now 11, now 10 years left to save the planet. That's not true. But this is a budget that's consistent with keeping below one and a half degrees. So think about this. If China reduced their emissions 20% in a matter of weeks, they were almost halfway to their Paris target goals in just a few weeks. And globally, if we reduce our emissions 5 or 10% on an annual basis, well, that's, you know, anywhere from 12 to 25% of our way to the Paris Agreement targets in a single year. So what this shows us is when we really focus our attention and our action, massive changes are possible. But unfortunately, again, these changes were not achieved in a sustainable way. We have to achieve them sustainably. Like what? First of all, we have to increase the efficiency. We are very wasteful of our energy in rich countries. In the United States, which is arguably one of the most wasteful countries in the world, Germany is the least wasteful. They're very efficient with their energy use. In the U.S., it's estimated that carbon emissions could be cut in half simply through efficiency improvements alone. Then we need to replace our fossil fuels with clean energy sources Then we also need to consider how we can draw down or suck some of the carbon out of the atmosphere through tree planting, yes, but also through much more high-tech methods that, for example, can actually suck carbon out of the atmosphere and turn it into liquid fuel that could be used to replace fossil fuels in some sectors where you still need liquid fuel. So there's many things that we can do to be sustainable, and some of those changes even include lifestyle changes, for example. So as you know, I when I stepped on the carbon scales a number of years ago, I was very surprised to find out that the biggest part of my carbon footprint was my travel. Uh, 
And it was not travel to vacations or to see family. It was travel to scientific meetings and conferences and to talk about climate change. So I've set out the last few years to deliberately transition about 80% of the talks that I give to virtual low-carbon talks. And that way, I'm able to give twice as many talks. I'm much more efficient with my time as well as my carbon. And when I do travel, I travel like I did to Ireland and like I did to London last time we met, where I bundle multiple events together. So I'm never flying somewhere just to give a single talk or event. I'm typically doing anywhere from five or six, if it's a shorter trip, to anywhere from, you know, 20 to even up to 40 in a week or a week and a half, if it's a longer trip, to be really effective with my time and my carbon. So efficiency, lifestyle choices, clean energy, and drawing down carbon, those are the sustainable changes that will take us to a better future. Very interesting. You you mentioned uh, lifestyle changes and so forth. And this is a vexed question, I guess, the degree to which, you know, industrial uh, consumer lifestyles we can continue those and can continue those after the, this this crisis when there's going to be an opportunity. Things are going to change. Uh, things are changing. Um, do you think, I mean, green growth is a, a, a popular idea at the moment. Uh, and at, at the same time, there are, are some economists and, and, and others who, who are very critical of that idea and think actually we really need very significant, very profound changes in our lifestyles. But where do you sit on that uh, spectrum? Um, I would say yes and yes. <laughs> so, so another way that this is often couched in terms of solutions is do we need individual or system-wide change? And the answer there again is yes. So currently, ten, according to Oxfam, 10%, the 10% richest people in the world produce 50% of global emissions. The 50% poorest people in the world produce 10% of global emissions. So there's an enormous disparity in the consumption of resources on this planet that is driving this imbalance. I mean, as you know, for someone who lives where I live, I have a fairly conservative lifestyle. But if you go to one of those, you know, how many planets would it take to support your lifestyle tools, it would still take multiple planets to support mine, as well as many other people's. So, but at the same time, When we look at all of the heat-trapping gas emissions since the dawn of the industrial era, so I'm talking well over 100 years here, it turns out that 90 corporations are responsible for two-thirds of heat-trapping gas emissions, 90 companies. And the reason why you and I know about the concept of carbon footprint is because of a massive advertising campaign by BP which of course formerly known as British Petroleum. The concept of an ecological footprint was in, was created by a sustainability expert and a regional planning professor, a Canadian and a Swiss experts. But the, the carbon part was taken out and popularized by an oil and gas campaign to turn the focus on our individual choices and in our individual lives so the 90 corporations that produce two-thirds of heat-trapping gas emissions could continue to increase their quarterly returns as long as possible. It's, so it's complex, isn't it? Because we're, oh. we're we're all involved in it at some level, but yet, as you say, and uh, the system wide, the importance of a system wide approach, and I, I guess more voices are emerging at the moment uh, as to uh, needing more significant change. When they've looked at the level of uh, drop in carbon emissions over this period, where, where where people have stopped, you know, where the economy stopped, although it hasn't stopped clearly completely, but um, yeah, the personal uh, carbon footprint is uh, it's very interesting, and uh, uh, we all carry it 
around with us, of course, in, in, in our head. You, 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 you're talking a little bit about the science communications, I guess, um, and, or, or the way we talk about this and the way we frame it. And I know it's a very int- topic that of, of interest to yours, uh, of, of to you over the over the years. Um, I mean, I guess there there was an idea in the air that uh, this idea of a cognitive deficit that, um, with respect to the science and understanding the situation, and people only really knew what was going on, and really if, if we could communicate the what was actually happening, the science scientists were clearer, and if we could make the the message clearer, then people would get it, and and they change their behaviour and so forth. I'm wondering, uh, has that? Uh, w- do you think that that's a, a valid way of looking at things, or have we uh, learned over time? And I'm particularly interested here, and I know you've given a presentation on this and talked about this, and um, this question of values and what really is when people are saying they 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 believe in climate change or not. What are some of the key drivers of that? And just to add a little bit into that, which is to say, mm-hmm. and what and, and what do you think that means for policy if it's if if values is such an important uh, factor? Sorry to yes, <laughs> fit too much in there, so, <laughs> fit off a lot there. That that was that was a few questions in in one. So so first of all, I don't want people so much to change what they do as what they advocate for. We need system-wide changes, for example, like putting a price on carbon, so that even if somebody doesn't care about an electric car or public transportation, they will realize it's a lot cheaper and more affordable for them to do that, and so that's why they will do it. What matters is what we do, not why we do it. And too often, I feel like, because the climate movement came out of the environmental movement, too often I feel like the communication is, you need the values that we have, and let's work on instilling the values we have into you the implication or the subtext to that being you are a bad person, we are judging you because you don't have the right values. And then once you have the right values, then you will support the same things that we do. And unfortunately, a lot of communication, I think, has sort of um, subconsciously taken that approach. Whereas the reality is, it doesn't matter why we do it. What matters is, do we do it? So do we support clean energy? Do we support efficiency? Do we support smart policies that clean up our air and our water and secure our future? And the vast majority of people would answer yes to that question, even people who would say climate is not changing due to human activities. That's the interesting thing. So when I talk to people, my goal is not to change who they are in some type of conversion experience because the chances of that happening are very small and very frustrating. And my my goal is not to make them believe in climate change either because most people in this world already have a religion that they believe in and they're very happy with it and they're not looking for a new religion. So when we use this word believe, it's almost as if we're implying that science is some type of religion and it requires belief to understand that when you throw up an apple, it falls and that when you produce heat trapping gases into the atmosphere, they trap heat. Rather, my goal, and I talk about this a lot more in my TED Talk, my goal is to identify the values people already have. And those are very unique to that person. So one person, their values could be wrapped up in their children. Another could be really passionate about um, growing local jobs. Somebody else could care a lot about the sport that they engage in, whether it's fishing or hunting or um, skiing. So Identifying the values people already have, then connecting the dots to how climate change affects what they already care about, 
showing them that who they already are is the perfect person to care about climate change. And in fact, supporting climate action makes them an even more genuine version of who they really are. It makes them a better parent. It makes them a better steward of our natural resources that support the activities they enjoy. It makes them a better fiscal conservative. It makes them a better person who's concerned about national security. Well, you mentioned or, the, the fiscal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting you say that, the, the, the values. Um, but I understand a lot of the research, when you boil it down, suggests that the biggest driver is actually a political affiliation. So talking to them about their fishing or their gardening or or their hobbies is fine. But is that really going to help change? Well, that's why having political messengers across the spectrum is important. But what's key is to try to reach people through their identities, which in some cases, the only identity they have is that of politics. And in that case, it's almost impossible. The only possible reach is through people who share their political values. And there are absolutely messengers like that. In the United States, for example, Bob Inglis, a former two-term Republican congressman from South Carolina, is an excellent messenger to his fellow um, conservatives and Republicans. Um, There are those types of messengers in every country around the world. But for many people, we at least have one or two other things that we that, that we do see as part of our identity, um, whether it's our faith, that's a big important one for many people, um, whether it's our sense of where we live. Uh, it's shown that if you bring the impacts of climate change home to the place where we live, it removes a lot of the political polarization around the issue. So really working on identifying those issues and showing people how they already care, number one, and here's here's the key, number two how there are solutions that are consistent with their political ideology. So they don't have to change who they are politically. They can advocate for solutions within their current political framework. That's what we've seen really affect true change. That's very interesting. Over Certainly over the last year and over the last six months, there seems to be, uh, at least from what I've seen, a a bit of a shift in momentum in terms of this polarized uh, debate, in terms of the the non-acceptance, shall we say, of of climate change and so forth. But I guess it ties back to this idea again of the communications. There was also an assumption that when that, that, that maybe that that would lead people to, to uh, want to have, you know, change in, 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 I guess, a progressive kind of way. But what you've seen and you, you do see is, I guess, uh, tentacles of, of what we might call climate fascism or climate nationalism, you know, and uh, using the saying, well, actually, yeah, no, climate change is real. And as a result, we need to close the border. Borders, we need energy independence, we need to get rid of migrants and things like that. So um, how do you see that at the moment? And are you optimistic that there is this, this, that this uh, momentum that is there can lead to significant positive change? Well, the question right now in the midst of this pandemic is, will our response to the pandemic address the underlying vulnerabilities throughout our economy and our society that make us more vulnerable to both pandemics and the impacts of a changing climate? Or will our response to the pandemic actually increase our vulnerabilities to both future pandemics as well as to the impacts of a changing climate? It could go both ways. And we already see examples of both happening today. So in the United States, where I live, Um, we have already seen that the government has taken this opportunity, while everybody's concerned about the pandemic, to roll back a very large number of environmental regulations aimed at reducing the flaring of methane gas, aimed at uh, protecting clean air and clean water, aimed at uh, levying fines and regulations on polluters. Those have been rolled back in the name of economic progress and industry. 
Whereas other places, for example, um, some cities in the Netherlands have specifically said that coming out of the pandemic, they plan to really implement a, a Marshall Plan, so to speak, or a true new deal where restoring the economy involves moving forward into the future, looking at sustainability, livable cities, a green economy, clean energy jobs, increases in efficiency, those types of things. So it really is a very serious choice to be made right now that will have repercussions for decades into the future. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'd like to maybe talk about that in a moment to get, get your sense of uh, some of the things we can do, because uh, we're part of the solution. And as you talked about advocacy and so forth, um, uh, you've been very involved in the IPCC um, and I'm wondering, we're talking about the, the, the behavior in the United States and in the Netherlands and so forth. And I'm wondering about uh, at a kind of a supranational level, um, what your thoughts are on, on ways forward and how you what's your assessment of the uh, a big topic, but just maybe a, a brief overview of the how successful the IPCC and its approach has been and whether or not um, you think that the, there are, is room for other uh, international multilateral type governance that might uh, work with it or just generally in, in terms of dealing with, with, with global warming? Mm-hmm. So I have served primarily at the national level. The United States has a large system called the National Climate Assessment, which frankly rivals some aspects of the IPCC in terms of the depth of its analysis and the comprehensiveness of its peer review. So I've served as a lead author for the National Climate Assessment for the last uh, second, third and fourth um, assessments. And I've only served tangentially with the IPCC occasionally as an expert reviewer, uh, because you sort of, as a scientist, you have to make a choice. Where are you going to donate your time? It's, it's We're talking weeks to months of your time that you donate to these assessments. But I follow the IPCC very closely, and I have many colleagues who are very closely involved. And I also talk to a lot of people who are not part of the scientific community, but who are aware of the IPCC. And one of the biggest misconceptions that I see among people, and I see this very frequently, is the misconception that the IPCC is some type of regulatory body that can set targets and enforce targets. And then people say, well, why hasn't the IPCC done this? And I say, no, that is not the mandate of the IPCC or even the scientific community in general. The IPCC was set up by, among others, Sir John Houghton, who was a leader in our field who just lost his life at age 88 to COVID-19 a few weeks ago. And Sir John Houghton and others set up the IPCC for this purpose, to synthesize the existing science. So another common misconception is that the IPCC has climate models or the IPCC has, you know, original science it does. No, the IPCC collects all of the science, including all of the climate model simulations and all of the research analysis that people do. It collects it all. It summarizes and synthesizes it. So instead of just having, you know, one paper on ice sheets over here and one over here, the IPCC collects them all together and puts them all together and summarizes, you know, most of them say this, but one or two say that. It's a huge summary of the existing science. And the purpose of this summary is specifically to inform the international negotiations under the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that was signed uh, back in Rio in the early 1990s. So that is it. That is the mandate of the IPCC is to provide the science that who needs that the policymakers and the politicians need. The policymakers and the politicians are the ones that actually create the targets like one and a half or two degrees based on both the science and something else, their values. 
Because how climate change affects us, whether one or one and a half, two or two and a half or three degrees is dangerous, it depends on our geographic location. It depends on how vulnerable we already are to things like resource scarcity, poverty, socioeconomic inequality, and more. It depends on what matters to us. There's a whole collection of values that go into determining what is dangerous to where, you know, one degree might be dangerous for one group, but not for another. So that's the role of the IPCC. And often people say, well, why aren't they doing more? Well, no, they are perfectly fulfilling the role they've been given, but they don't have any authority other than that. Absolutely. That's my question, whether there should be any other governance mechanism that would work with that or work at a supranational level to take forward the, their research or the way they present it, the, 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 their findings, which is very influential in, in terms of how the uh, debate uh, is taken forward. Yes, it absolutely is. And this is a question, interestingly, I was exploring this with my class just recently. Um, how do you actually implement a target? So you have the Conference of Parties. Almost every country in the world has agreed is a signatory to the Conference of Parties, to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And the Paris Agreement came out of that process. It was agreed on by every country in the world, including the United States. Well, then how do you enforce the Paris Agreement? Right now, it's really like a potluck dinner. Everybody has made promises of what they plan to bring to the dinner. So far, the promises are massively inadequate. They will keep us around about three degrees. I think the latest numbers are, let's see. Oh, no, the, the pledges that, that countries have pledged would get us to 2.8 degrees. But the actual policies that are in place would get us to three degrees. And we want to be to one and a half or two degrees. So in other words, we've got this potluck dinner where everybody in the world is coming, yet we only have half the amount of food on the table that will feed the people who are coming. So how do you get the countries to agree? Um, unfortunately, short of all-out global war, your options are pretty limited. You've got peer pressure and shaming. You've got imposing border tariffs and sanctions. You've got, and this is an interesting one, you've got multinational corporations exerting their influence. Unfortunately, the vast majority of the richest multinational corporations are oil and gas companies, but there are... There's the richest company in the world, which is Walmart. Then there's companies like Apple and Microsoft, investment firms like BlackRock and Berkshire Hathaway. Companies can really influence a lot. And then, then at the bottom, there's countries recognizing how climate change affects them. And so this is the one that I spend so much of my life on, really showing people that, for example, if you put the National Climate Assessment together with the State of the Carbon Cycle Report, which is also released by the U.S. government the same day, if you put those two reports together, they show in very clear terms that if the U.S. met the Paris Agreement targets, it would actually start benefiting economically from avoided impacts over about a decade. So really showing people how meeting these targets would personally benefit them, I think can be very powerful. But I mean, honestly, what, what other ways are there to get countries to comply? Sure. Sure. I, I guess, um, so, so somebody uh, writing recently was talking about what was that the Kyoto Pro Protocol, uh, Montreal, with respect to the um, the uh, ozone layer, and that one of the key elements was the fact that they could actually get 
everybody in a room almost to, you know, that were involved in it to actually negotiate something. And it comes back to this question of the small number of companies in a way that are responsible for, for, for so much of the impact. Um, I, I've asked that question before, but nobody seems to think it's a, <laughs> it's a viable way forward to get everybody in the room. <laughs> well, honestly, I think that would be interesting because in a way, I almost feel like they haven't had the right people in the room. So for example, in the Paris Agreement, you had all of the countries represented at the meeting place for the COP, but then the mayor of Paris was hosting all the mayors of the biggest cities in the world downtown. And frankly, today, cities have much more influence over their local environment, their emissions, their adaptation options than a country does. And the vast majority of our population is becoming increasingly urbanized. So the fact that the mayors of the largest cities were not even in the same room as the leaders of the countries, I think, was an issue. And then you didn't have a meeting of those biggest companies either. So maybe you're right. Maybe the right people haven't actually been in the room together. Yes, yes. I, you were talking about the political uh, backdrop. And I, I think somebody said, whenever climate change policies are seen to conflict with economic growth, climate change loses every time. Um, I was wondering what, what, what you think of that and, and the degree to which, I mean, we touched on it before. I guess, you know, there is a philosophy uh embedded in 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 finance and in in corporate life of growth and and, and pretty much unlimited growth good gro- growth is better so even in, in in a newspaper that might have a headline on the front page about an environmental problem uh on page you know the, the financial pages or inside it'll have about you know economic growth and the government you know how, how it's doing with economic growth and so forth what do you think mm-hmm. well The argument, the environment or the economy is one that is old and it has been used again and again in my own country during our last conservative administration under uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper. He constantly said is that the environment or the economy, arguing for the economy, of course. But here's the thing. It is a completely false dichotomy because the economy cannot float around in outer space without the resources that this planet supplies. It is not the entire economy versus the environment, and we have to pick which. It is a very few, very wealthy industries, their short-term profit versus the long-term benefit to the environment and every other single person on the planet. That is the argument. And when you ask people, actually, even the United States, shockingly, when you ask people, would you choose between the environment or the economy, as if you as if you can choose, again, the economy will not survive without a healthy environment to support our, our civilization. Even in the United States, the majority of people say we would pick the environment. So it's not just the tail wagging the dog. It's the tip of the tail wagging the dog. It's the few very wealthy industries who benefit from continued pollution of our air and our water and production of carbon emissions at the expense of the health and the welfare of every other person on this planet. And indeed, presumably, when it comes to communication as well, there's have been uh, there is an endemic of of, of fake news, and uh, we we know in the the uh, fossil fuel industry, there's been a lot of misinformation and so forth uh, about the uh, you know global warming and so forth. And I'm just wondering, as a, as a, I guess I would call it an activist science communicator, but um, what have what what has been what 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 have you learned about the impact of vested interests? On, on climate science communications and what, what do you think might be done? Are there some trans- measures for transparency or uh, anything like that? Mm-hmm. 
Well, absolutely. A number of the oil and gas companies decided quite some time ago, more than 20 years ago, that the cheapest way for them to keep their quarterly returns rising would be not to consider turning themselves from oil and gas into energy companies and investing clean energy, but rather investing what was for them a rather small and insignificant amount of money in think tanks, which would deliberately muddy the waters on climate change by attacking scientists, by running op-eds, by producing reports, by creating fake experts. They took a leaf straight out of the tobacco company's handbook. In fact, they even hired some of the same people who were doing PR for the tobacco companies. And they used them to deliberately muddy the waters, confuse people, and make this a partisan issue over the last 20 years. Naomi Reskis is a professor at Harvard who has studied this for a long time. She authored an incredible book called Merchants of Doubt, and it also has been made into a documentary, and I highly recommend both. And she also has continued to focus specifically on Exxon. She has a project called Exxon Knows, and through uh, Freedom of Information Act requests, they have actually obtained access to emails and letters and internal memos dating back to the 1980s, showing that Exxon, um, their scientists knew exactly what was happening. They advised the leadership of precisely what the impact of uh, oil and gas was on the Earth's climate, and the decision was made to simply try to pull the wool over people's eyes. But why did it, why was it so successful? It was so successful because of the cultural threads that already run through our society. The idea that um, you know life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all is is a key part of the American psyche. The fact that all of us instinctively recognize that the Industrial Revolution brought us untold benefits. It doubled the average lifespan of a person in the UK. Uh, people went from an average lifespan of 40 years to 80 years in just 200 years from 1800 until now due to the Industrial Revolution. So we instinctively know that fossil fuels brought us the wealth that we enjoy today, the lifestyle we enjoy today. And because we don't know that there are solutions that will continue to supply our energy in the future that aren't fossil fuels, and because a lot of misinformation has been circulated about those, including a very recent movie by Michael Moore called Planet of the Humans. Yes, yeah. Which drags up all kinds of old myths about green energy and how it doesn't actually work, relying on very old data, I might say as well. Um, because of that, um, these disinformation campaigns have been very successful because we all inherently feel guilty about the fact that we are enjoying our wealth at the expense of future generations and the poorest in the world today. And so we we are looking for any excuse to say, oh, that science isn't real or those scientists are always, you know, calling wolf and nothing really happens. And it's not that big a deal and there's nothing we can do to fix it anyways. So we're looking for these excuses, so to speak, to so that we don't feel like the bad person rather than the good person. And that's why talking about true, positive, constructive solutions is so important because it allows us to realize that we really can be the good person here. Yes, absolutely. And I've done a podcast series with Paul Hawken uh, on the drawdown, on drawdown called the drawdown agenda, which looks at many of these solutions, which are fantastic and are very powerful and, and, you know, what you call win, 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 and, and so forth. But, you know, getting that message out is, is a difficult one. I mean, so maybe finally, uh, and I think it was Winston Churchill, not, not Boris Johnson, but Winston <laughs> Churchill who said, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, and I'm just wondering, um, you 
you know, uh, many people, I think, hoped for major sy- systemic change after the 2008 financial crisis, and, and that hope was dashed. Things got much worse. And I'm just wondering, um, have you any thoughts about the kind of aim changes that we should aim for as we come out of this crisis um, and, and what we can do as individuals to help catalyze them? Are there some points of leverage, maybe? Mm-hmm. Well, again, a crisis is absolutely a turning point. It offers us the opportunity to choose a different future because our response to this crisis to invest in people's lives, to increase our investment in people's health, our response could go one of two ways as we talked about. It could go to let's just reinforce the status quo as much as we can Or it could go to, you know what, we know that we're putting ourselves at risk with air pollution. People who live in very polluted areas are twice as likely to get really sick and even die from uh, respiratory diseases like coronavirus and SARS than if they live in areas with clean air. Uh, We know that clean energy actually produces more jobs now, even in the United States than oil and gas. We know that clean energy can supply some of the poorest parts on the planet that don't have resources of fossil fuels, but they certainly have a lot of sun and wind and even hydrokinetic energy potential, hydroelectricity or tidal energy. So the question is, which one will we choose? And fear will keep us clinging to the way things were, the status quo. But hope is what will help us move forward into the future. Are you optimistic? Well, I didn't say which one is going to drive us. I said, I said that we have a choice between fear and hope. <laughs> yes, yes. What, what's next for you? Um, well, I do so much of my work virtually that I've been busier than ever the last month or so. A number of the events that I even had planned in person have been transitioned to online. I'm teaching and developing an online class. I'm writing a new book about how do we have those tough conversations about climate change with people and how do we connect on our shared values. And I'm just doing everything I can to help people recognize that who they already are is the perfect person to care about climate change because we only have to be one thing and that's a human living on this planet. That's a great message. And uh, Catherine, and I wish you the very best uh, with your ongoing work. And thank you so much for all of the the great work you're doing. The communications is so powerful and and so helpful. And uh, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.